Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. And we're going to get there in a few moments, but we will first pray and then start this morning's sermon. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Please be seated. Many apostles in the Bible are given different names different labels. The Apostle Paul is known as the Apostle of Faith. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love. But the Apostle Peter is known as the Apostle of Hope. And in today's verses, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, we're going to look at and examine seven reasons to hope. Now, 1 Peter is an epistle. It's a letter written to a general audience. And in the introduction of this epistle, the Apostle Peter addresses this letter to exiles, people who are not in one place but are dispersed in a large geographical area. And what the Apostle Peter does in his introduction is that he deposits hope into the hearts of these exiles by telling them that we are born again to a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What the Apostle Peter then goes on to describe is what Christ has already done. He then goes on to define who we are as a people. And who we are as a people is intimately related to what Christ has already done. In Psalm number 8, that psalm answers the question, who am I? It answers the question, what is man? But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, this text answers the question, who are we? Who are the people of God? And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, the Apostle Peter tells us exactly who we are. The text says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The title of this morning's message is Seven Reasons to Hope. 
And we have seven reasons to hope in God because of what he has done through his son, because of who we are in him and because of what he has called us to do. And that hope is eternal, concrete, and unshakable because the source of our hope, Jesus Christ, is eternal, concrete, and unshakable. Now Peter begins verse number 9 by saying, but, but you are a, but is a grammatical phrase, that's a conjunction. It's used to introduce a contrast to what has already been said. What has the Apostle Peter already told us? He's told us who the people of God are not. And verse number 8, he says, the people of God are not those who stumbled because they, are dis because they are disobedient to the word of God. The people who are not the people of God don't see Jesus Christ as a living stone, as the cornerstone upon which our spiritual house is built. They see him as a rock of offense and a stumbling block. But Peter says, but... You, those who are born again, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but you are members of God's spiritual house and therefore have any destiny that is not saturated with hopelessness, but rather those members of God's spiritual house who are attached to the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ have an eternity saturated in hope. And because we are all connected to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, that also means we are also connected to one another in this spiritual house. Now, why do we hope? Where does our hope come from? The Apostle Peter tells us, because the people of God are chosen. Verse number 9 says, But you are a chosen race. You is plural. Peter is not speaking to you sitting in one seat. He's speaking to y'all. He's speaking to you all, the people of God. But you are a chosen race. Reason to hope, number one. We hope because God chose us. We hope because God chose us. And if God chooses us, if God chooses you, plural, that means no one can ever unchoose you. Peter identifies those who believe in Christ as chosen. And the reason why we are chosen is because God chose. Our chosenness derives from the fact that an external agent did all the work. It's God who chose us. Therefore, we are defined by what's been done to us. We are not defined by what we do. And just as God chose the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he has chosen the church in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you, this is God speaking, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you trust him? Do you serve him? Do you worship him? Do you wake up every single day and realize the reason why you were woken up is because of Jesus Christ? Do you delight in the reality that your eyes are open to see him as the risen Lord because of what God has done? Do you praise, do you delight in the fact to proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is your master and you are his slave? If you answered yes to all of those questions, then you are chosen and a member of a chosen race. And before there's even an inkling of pride that begins to develop, when someone hears they are chosen, the text says, chosen, not choice. 
The text says chosen, not choice. Someone who is chosen means they are the recipients of a gift. Someone else gives them something. Someone or people that are choice means that they're special. Means that they have some inherent worth or value that makes them deserving of being selected. But we are not a choice people, beloved. We are chosen. Who chose us? God did. Why did he choose us? Because God chose to choose. When were we chosen? Before we were even born, meaning we didn't do anything to earn or merit being chosen. Romans 8, 29 to 30 and 9, 10 to 13. Our selection, our chosenness has everything to do with God, not us. The continuation of the verses I read in Deuteronomy, I'm going to quote here. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Church, when we rejoice in the biblical reality that the people of God are chosen, that is never an occasion for pride. That instead is a reason to hope and glorify God. Because ultimately, God being sovereign didn't have to choose anybody. People say silly things. They say things like, doctrine is boring. They say things like, getting into foundational Bible doctrines is too nerdy, it's too intellectual. That's for, that's for the leaders in the church. That's just for, for Sunday school. But the only people that say Bible doctrine is boring are people who don't know any doctrine. And when the Bible says we are chosen, that speaks to the doctrine of unconditional election, meaning God elected, God chose those people who are his unconditionally. That choice was not conditional on us. That choice was not conditional on our performance in life. It was an unconditional choice based on the sovereign will and grace of God. And for scripture references, see Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4, Acts 13.48. Acts 13, 48, and John 15, 16. John 15, 16. And I dare say all that, church, in making sure we have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of unconditional election. Because when we understand that God unconditionally chose us and that choice can never be revoked because God made it, that now is one of the most heartwarming, joy-cultivating, Christ-exalting, assurance-producing nuggets of knowledge the Christian could ever know. Why is that? Because it highlights the fact that God is sovereign. It highlights the fact that God is in charge. And if a sovereign God chooses you, that means you are now safe forever. That now gives you the thing so many people search for their entire life and never find. That gives you peace. That gives you peace knowing that as a function of what God has done, you are now right with God because of the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. That now means et your eternity is safe. Not as a function of what you have done, as a function of what Christ has done. 
Now, knowing that doctrine, having a biblical understanding of, un of unconditional election means you now have a desire for holiness. You now have a desire to obey. And now your entire life becomes a highlight reel of praise, thanksgiving, and gratitude to the God who had grace and chose you. What unconditional election does is it uproots any plant or inkling of pride and destroys that plant before it even has a chance to sprout up out of the ground. But the Apostle Peter says that we are a chosen race. He's quoting from Isaiah 43, verse 20. People don't like using that word race. It's very sensitive. I've actually heard people, when their Bible says chosen race, they use a different word because they don't want to offend anybody. But the text says chosen race from the Greek genos, which means offspring, family, race, nation, or kind. Truly, the people of God are a brand new kind. We're a radically different species because before God's choice, we were spiritually dead with a warped, corrupted, sinful nature. Now, after God's unconditional election, what happens? After conversion, after regeneration, now we are no longer spiritually dead. We are spiritually alive and now have a radically new nature. So in all, for all intents and purposes, the people of God truly are a radically new, different race, family, kind, species. Now when we talk about race, when the Bible talks about race, and we talk about race in 21st century America, those two terms, how they're interpreted, are worlds apart. And the one thing I want the church to realize is that God never separates or classifies human beings based on the human perception of race. Never. There are no African Americans in the Bible. There are no Caucasians in the Bible. There are no Asians in the Bible. God has one primary classification scheme for defining people. Are you for God or against him? Are you of Israel or out? Are you in Christ church or are you out? That's it because that's the only distinction that actually matters in eternity. The other way God classifies people is by ethnicity or nationality, as in Jew, Gentile, or Greeks or Romans. But God never, ever distinguishes people based on race. Why? Because biblically speaking, church, race does not exist. Our human perception of race is a lie. It's a myth. It's a manufactured concoction where if you listen to men, we're members of different races. But my Bible tells me that there is one race. That race is human. In the Garden of Eden, God did not create man's, plural. He did not create kinds of people. He created man, one species, one race of human beings. In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is speaking on Mars Hill, he says, from one man, Adam, resulted every nation and tribe in the world, meaning what? We are all descended from one individual. Do you know, church, that this is even validated scientifically, that myth is a race, that race is a myth? If you look genetically at people, for example, who are brown and not so brown, and you look at the DNA of people who are brown, there are going to be more differences in and amongst the brown people than when you compare the brown people to not so brown, telling us what? We're not really that different. 
Did you know that the reason why people are lighter and darker is because in their skin they have things called melanocytes. And the melanocytes make melanin. If you have a lot of melanocytes, you make a lot of melanin, and therefore you're really dark. But guess what? It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. Every human being has melanocytes. The only difference is that darker people have more. Telling us what? That we're all the same color. The only thing that's different is some people are a lighter shade of the same color. Human race is a lie. It's a myth. Here's what men do. Men say we're different races. Everyone's different. Now let's hold hands. God says there is one human race. Do you want to know how to achieve racial reconciliation? You don't believe the myth, the lie, that racial distinctions exist and realize that God made one race of people. But even more than that, we can muck around and talk about human race all day long, but the only race that matters is the race that is chosen. Because in the church of God, there is neither male nor female, nor Jew or Gentile, nor Greek nor barbarian. We are one people united by one Lord and are all living stones that have in common the fact that we worship our precious Lord and Savior. Members of the chosen race are now members of the only race that matters in eternity. And now that we know that we are members of the chosen race, everything else that Peter is now going to say stems from the reality that we are chosen as a function of God's unconditional election. The next thing Peter says is that we are members of a royal priesthood. He's quoting from Isaiah 61.6 and 66.21. Reason to hope number two. We hope because we are members of an eternal club, a royal priesthood. Now, to understand what this term means, we have to go back to the Old Testament, where the priesthood began. The priesthood in the Old Testament wasn't royal. They were priestly. And a priest was defined by their status and their function. Their status was being a Levite, meaning you had to be a member of a particular tribe of Levi. Priests were also defined by their function, what they did. What did the priests do? Good question. They were mediators. They were the ones who were the go-betweens in between the people and God. They were the ones who offered sacrifices like bulls and lambs in the temple. They were the ones who made intercessory prayers on behalf of the people up to God. They were the ones who had access to God because guess what? The temple back then was a physical representation of God's presence on earth. Who could get the closest into the most sacred place? Only the priests. The priests were also the ones who were responsible for communicating and teaching the scriptures, teaching the word of God to the people. That was the Old Testament priesthood. But we're in 1 Peter. We're in the New Testament. The New Testament priesthood, we have a new great high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. We don't have to sacrifice bulls and lambs anymore because Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that was eternally sufficient, so there needs to be no more atonement anymore because we have the cross. But now our status, being members of the royal priesthood, we now have status as a function of God choosing us. Now what's our function? Now what do we do? Now, in a sense, we still mediate. 
We still are a go-between, not between God and man, but between the kingdom of heaven in the church and the kingdom of the world. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices, but we offer sacrifice of ourselves. Romans 12:2. We offer sacrifices of our time, sacrifices of our talents, sacrifices of our resources, sacrifices of our ears, sacrifices of our hands to do and our feet to go. We still offer intercessory prayers. Who are we praying for? Number one, the church. We're praying for pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, evangelists. Church, realize something. There's an entire world out there that doesn't know God, that doesn't even know what prayer is. Who do you think is responsible for praying for a world, not praying for itself? We are. Because we are members of a royal priesthood. Even if you don't like who's in power in your country, guess who's supposed to pray for them? The church. That's what separates the church from the world. Why everyone else is whining and complaining, you are setting a godly example and praying. The priests in the Old Testament had access to God. Who do you think has access to God now? God's chosen people, because God does not hear the prayers of the unregenerate. And just as the priests in the Old Testament communicated the words to people, we as members of the royal priesthood do the same to the world at large. We sit under the word so we can not only communicate that word to one another, we have a word that speaks to all those we encounter in our everyday lives. And back then in the Old Testament, the priests were distinguished by their looks. The high priest, for example, he had an awesome, intricate, eye-appealing outer garment with colors and linens and fabrics and golds and stones and a censer, and he had a hat on his head. Meaning what? The great high priest, the, excuse me, the high priest back then, he looked good. Which tells us that as members of the royal priesthood now in the modern era, we have to look good as a function of our walk with God. We may, may not be able to say something to someone, but based upon our character, based upon how we conduct ourselves, based upon how we live our life, we are supposed to make God look good. We were chosen to be a member of a priesthood so that we can make God look good visual appeal. But as I mentioned, the priesthood in the Old Testament wasn't royal. They were priestly. A priesthood can only be royal if the great high priest is a priest king. And Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is the prophet, priest, and king in one who now has dominion over a royal family. Hebrews 7, 14 to 17. And because this priesthood is now royal, we now can step out into the world having been given, having been sent out by the priest king who has royal authority. Priests in the Old Testament stayed in the temple. Priests in the Old Testament stayed in the tabernacle. What are we supposed to do? Go. We're supposed to go out to preach Christ and to teach the Bible and to make disciples of every tribe, language, and tongue of the entire world. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Belonging to the royal priesthood is the only membership that matters in life because it's the only club that will actually last forever. People spend their entire lives wanting to belong, wanting to be in, wanting to be associated with something. They want to be a member of a club. But when you are one of God's chosen, and are now a member of the eternal royal priesthood, that means you are an insider forever. 
That now means as a function of what God has done, you, are, you now have intimacy with Jesus Christ and are now in. So if you are not in in the world, if you are not in in other clubs, if you are not in in whatever else the world regards as important, so what? Because membership in those clubs won't last. There's only one club that will last forever, the royal priesthood. Why seek validation anywhere else? Now before I leave this point alone, if the Apostle Peter tells us that we are members, we, all of us, if we are members of a royal priesthood, that makes us priests. That means every believer who has saving faith in Jesus Christ now has the title, now has the office of priest. What does that mean? That does not mean everyone is called to lead in the church. That does not mean everyone is gifted to do anything they want in the church. That means there's a universal club of believers. There's a universal priesthood where we now present ourselves to the body of Christ, knowing that God never called anyone to spectate. God never, God never called anyone to sit down and do nothing. Why is that? Because there were no chairs in the tabernacle. There were no chairs in the temple. So when a priest showed up, he didn't stop moving. He didn't stop doing because there was no spectation allowed. If we are members of the royal priesthood, we now present ourselves as a sacrifice, knowing that that title comes with certain duties and responsibilities. We are all members of the universal priesthood under our head, Jesus Christ. Peter says we are a holy nation. Reason to hope number three. We hope because we have a new heavenly citizenship. We hope because we have a new heavenly citizenship. As it says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Nation comes from a word, ethnos, that means people. The holy nation of God is therefore a nation of people that's derived from every other nation on planet Earth. Natural nations define themselves by borders, by geography, by language, by culture, by manners, by customs, by laws, by a constitution. But when you are a member of God's holy nation, we now have a new president. His name is Jesus Christ. We now have a new Lord who is Yahweh Elyon, the God of the Bible. We now live our lives based on a new constitution which is called the Word of God. That does not mean we are called to be rabble-rousers and revolutionaries. That means our ultimate allegiance is to our heavenly King and our ultimate allegiance is to the ultimate constitution, the Word of God. And as members of a holy nation drawn from all the nations of the, of the world, this means in the holy nation there is unity, there is not uniformity. Let's say that again. In the holy nation of God, there is unity, not uniformity. Uniformity means everyone's exactly the same. That's boring. That means every living stone is the same size, same shape, same cut, same color, same density. That is boring. But in the spiritual house that is representative of God's chosen people, there's different stones, different sizes, different shapes, different languages. But what unifies us is that we are all living stones attached to one cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And we also know that as a unified people in this holy nation, ultimately, regardless of what our natural citizenship is, 
We are always strangers, aliens, and foreigners in the kingdom of earth. But it is a holy nation. Holy means separate. Holy means other. So what distinguishes the holy nation is its character, is its holiness. It's the way the people who constitute that nation, who they are, how they conduct themselves, and how they live their lives. And that nation, once again, is head by Jesus Christ, and we are progressively sanctified and to be more like our great high priest by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the United States, you don't have to do anything to be a citizen of our nation if you're born here. You could just be. If your mother gives birth and she's on U.S. soil, you are now an American citizen. You are now a member of the nation of America. You don't have to do anything. You now grow up, maybe you love God. You now grow up, maybe you hate God. You now grow up, you may think, let's have a big government. You may grow up and think, let's have a small government. As a function of you not doing anything, your nature could be diverse and varied. You could believe what you want, do what you want, but because you being a member of this nation, you didn't have to do anything. The thing that makes you tick or your inherent nature does not change. When you are granted membership in a nation as a function of birth, you can do as you please and still be a member of that nation. But in the holy nation that the people of God are called to be a part of, the only way you can be a member of that nation is if God touches you first. If where God sees that the problem is your old, fleshly, sinful, carnal nature. And what does God now do? He touches your heart and your mind, and now he regenerates you. Now you're not a better man. You're not a more refined man. You're not a more moral man. You're a brand new person with a brand new nature. You are a new creature with a new heart, with a new mind. And that nature is now spiritual. And because that nature is now spiritual, authored as God, authored by God, when you are a member of the holy nation, you may not do as you please. Because what drives you is the spiritual nature wrought in your heart by God himself. As a member of God's holy nation, you live by the ethos. Christ died for me, now I will live for him. Because you realize citizenship, membership in that holy nation costs the Son of God his life. And you don't take that lightly, nor do you approach that grace in a cavalier, brash fashion. As members of the nation of God, we don't ask, hey God, what can you do for me? We instead realize God has already done everything for us. Now we say, my Lord and my God, how may I present myself? How may my life be used to glorify you more and more each and every day? Peter then says that we are a people for God's own possession. Reason to hope number four, we hope because God never forsakes his own possession. Reason to hope number four, we hope because God never forsakes his own possession. Possession can also be translated as a purchase or something acquired for a price. What was the price paid? The ransom blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But God's possession of us not only begins our Christian life, we are also preserved by God throughout the duration of our lives when finally and fully, when we pass away, we are eternally possessed by God and are with him in heaven forever. And when Peter says that we are a people of God's own possession, he's quoting from Exodus verses... Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. 
And that is when God speaks to his people, Israel, before giving them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, this is what God tells Israel through Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Church, what Peter is doing here in drawing our attention back to the original citation in Exodus 19, he's taking us back to what God has already done for his people. God took his people out of Egyptian bondage, out of darkness, out of slavery, not to leave his people alone in the wilderness. God took his people out of something and redeemed them so that now he would possess them, so that now he would never forsake them. God did not do all of that to leave his people alone. Peter now in the New Testament is drawing our attention back to the Old Testament so that now we can look back and realize God would never have sent his son and gone through a public ministry, gone through the crucifixion, gone through the rejection, gone through the resurrection. God would never have done all of that to forsake his people. Rather, God did all of that so that we would now be God's own possession. And until Christians embrace and understand this reality, that as a child of God, you are now God's own possession until you actually know and treasure that reality in your heart. You will never enjoy the fullness of gladness. You will never enjoy the abundance of life. And you will never enjoy the liberty of serving God unless you realize that God did everything and all of that in history already for his people, not to abandon his church, but to possess them forever. We hope because God never forsakes his own. As Matthew Henry once wrote, quote, the people of God are the most valuable people in the world, end quote. Until church, you realize that God did all of that never to forsake you, you will forever be a Pharisee. You will forever work. You will, ever, you will forever perform. You will ever keep doing and doing and doing, not realizing that you are already possessed by God. You can't become more possessed. You can't earn your staying with God because he already did all of that to possess his own. And when you embrace the reality that the people of God are God's own possession, that is when you will now have the abundance and fullness of life, of love, peace, and of joy. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. For what? What's the point of all that? Where is all this going? Peter says, so that, that indicates purpose. God did all of that, the selection, the royal priesthood, setting apart a people as his own so that we could do what? So that we could proclaim God's excellencies. Reason to hope number five. We hope because we reap spiritual benefits in serving God. We hope because we reap spiritual benefits in serving God. Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies. Excellencies refers to goodness, graciousness, or uprightness. In other words, God did all that. God gave us all of that so that we may now give and proclaim his excellencies to the world at large. Church, the reason why God gives, the reason why God does miracles, the reason why God bestows blessings, 
the reason why God equips them with talents, the reason why God makes some people prosperous is not so that you can delight in yourself. It is so that you may now use all of that giftedness to honor and glorify God. We were made, Isaiah 43, 7, to glorify God. So God did all of that, not so that its terminus is in us. The point of everything is God himself. So everything God has done thus far is fuel, is animation, so that we may proclaim his excellencies. And here's an interesting side note. Many in the Christian church today wonder and ask themselves, why has, not got, why has God not given me blank? Why has God not blessed me with blank? It's because God knows, and maybe you even know, that if you get blank, you're not going to proclaim his excellencies. You're actually going to use that as fuel to puff your own self up. The text says to proclaim God's excellencies. What does that mean? Proclaim means to show forth or advertise. That means we proclaim not just with our tongues, but with our lives. We're a walking billboard or advertisement for the excellencies of God. If God's end is for us to be vessels of his glory, beloved, any other end in life, in which we are not walking, leaving, living, breathing advertisements for God is going to leave us empty and frustrated. We hope because we reap spiritual benefits in serving God. God made us for his glory. What do you think is now going to happen if you live to glorify something else? You are now revoking the manufacturer's operating instructions. Now you're going to be fed up. Now you're going to be bitter. Now you're going to be angry. Now you're going to be unfulfilled. Now you're going to be dissatisfied. Not only then do we engineer our lives to glorify God, but when we do that, that is when we are now the most satisfied, the most contented, the most fulfilled, because now the eternal whole that's in our heart is being filled by the best there is, the eternal, loving, gracious God. As John Piper always says, God is the most glorified when we are the most satisfied in him. We proclaim the excellencies of God with our lives knowing that the focus of our life is never to make us look good, but to make God look good. So God did all of that so that we may proclaim his excellencies. So what do we proclaim? What's the content of our message? Peter tells us, we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Reason to hope number six. We hope because God not only took us out of something wretched, he brought us into something infinitely marvelous. We hope not only because God took us out of something wretched, he brought us into something infinitely marvelous. The text speaks about of him who has called you. That speaks of God effectually drawing or pulling a person to himself. And unlike when your cell phone rings and you see who's calling and you don't pick up or you let it go to voicemail, when God calls you, you always pick up and you always say, yes, Lord, here I am. When God calls, everyone picks up and everyone responds in the affirmative. And when he calls, what does God do? He takes us out of darkness. What is darkness? Biblically defined, darkness is best described as the absence of light. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God did not say, let there be light yet. And what was there? There was darkness. 
Darkness refers to the absence of God's truth. Darkness refers to living a lifestyle saturated in sin. That's concealed. That's hidden. There's an absence of God's truth. Living a life filled with darkness invariably leads to condemnation, death, and therefore there is hopelessness. Peter tells us what darkness looks like in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All of those things characterize darkness. Darkness is synonymous with spiritual ignorance, where people neither know who God really is and, as a result, don't know who they really are. And because you don't need vision to see in the dark, people who dwell in the dark are blind. They're blind to see Jesus for who he really is, and they're blind to the fact that they're in the darkness. They're blind to the fact that the one who can actually save them is of the light. People who live in the darkness always think the problem is not them because they can't see in the mirror. People who dwell in the darkness always think the problem is the man, society, an ism, and schism, someone else. People think the world is broken because of some other external variable, not realize the world is the way that it is because a whole bunch of broken people who never look in the mirror form a society, animate a spirit of the age. Darkness is synonymous with spiritual ignorance, and no one in the darkness ever sees the light. That's why God has to call us out of it. And what does God call us into? Into his marvelous light. It's not natural light, because all natural sources of light have a natural supply of energy, meaning what? The energy supply always runs out. It's not a light of education, not a light of reform, not a light of philosophy. It's not a light of natural knowledge. It is into God's marvelous light. This is a light that is divine, that is eternal, and that will never go away. And when that light hits us, it not only gets into our mind, it gets into our heart and gets into our will. So not only are our eyes opened, but so are our hearts to respond to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, when a man has lived his entire life in the darkness and he steps out into the light, his eyes will hurt because he has to get used to the change in illumination. But after his eyes are sore and he stays in the light for some time, he's going to get used to it. And when he can finally see in the light, he will now be able to see God for who he really is. And because he can now see God for who he really is, he can now see himself for who he really is. And the more and more he walks in the light, he will now love the light. He will now delight in the light, and he will hate and abhor everything that is of the darkness. And as we grow with God, we're like moons. We have no ability to produce light by ourselves, but our ability to reflect God's light grows and grows and grows. Because the intensity of God's light never changes, but our ability to reflect his light does change. It becomes better and better as we mature with God. And God's light appears marvelous because now we know how truly dark our former darkness was. And in God's marvelous light, we will not only begin seeing the world for what it really is, we will begin not only seeing things for what they are, we can now begin seeing through things. Seeing that many things of the world are a mist or a vapor that aren't as they seem. We will begin to think things like, perhaps, living in a country that is wealthy and prosperous is not a blessing. Perhaps it's a curse. 
because the more wealth and prosperity you have, the more fuel there now is to make you not trust in God. Perhaps you begin seeing the world in which we live where there's an endless stream of entertainment, where there's an endless supply of things we can consume as a means to distract you from your calling and therefore as a means to take you away from the truly spiritually abundant life God has called you to live. It'll open your eyes to finally see that so many things in and of the world that people every day delight in are actually designed to do one thing, to steal your heart away from God. So you will delight when that thing takes your heart away. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, into the light to walk in the light. And one day in paradise, we will finally have full exposure to God's marvelous light. Because in paradise, there will be no sun. There will be no S-U-N. Because we will be face to face in the presence of the sun, S-O-N, who is the source of God's marvelous, eternal, heavenly light. Final verse this morning. Peter says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Reason to hope number seven. Final reason. We hope because, because grace makes everything possible, and God is a God of grace. We hope because grace makes everything possible and God is a God of grace. Grace is equal to God's unmerited favor. When God bestows grace, it is a free, voluntary gift. It's not forced. And because members of God's spiritual house are that way, as a function of God's grace. Every Christian is Christian because of mercy. The reason why Christians are Christian is because of the grace of God. There are no self-made men. There are no self-made women in God's spiritual house. We are who we are as a function of one thing, the grace of God. We are a people that are defined by what's been done to us as a function of God's divine hand. By God's mercy, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And church, when we really understand and appreciate what these verses are saying, we will never regard what God's calling for us is as a task, as a burden, as a labor, but we will regard it as an honor, a privilege of having the grace that animates us to proclaim God's excellencies to a world who does not know him. Everyone in the world, whether they know Jesus Christ as their Savior or not, is a recipient of God's grace because God's common grace touches everyone in the world. Psalm 36, 7, 145, 9. But God's chosen people, his church, the elect, we are special recipients of God's special mercy, but we have not only received God's special mercy, we continue to receive God's special mercy, and God's special mercy is a gift that keeps on giving in paradise forever. That is why we proclaim God's excellencies, knowing that there is an infinite supply of God's grace to whom he wills to bestow that grace.
Now this final part of second of first Peter chapter 2 verse 10 is a verse in the Bible that's very very important because it's a verse that appears in the Bible three times. It appears first in Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 where God speaks through his prophet and says, I will, sow, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Paul quotes Hosea 2.23 in Romans 9.25. And that's what this text says. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. In the book of Hosea, God speaks through his prophet to the Israelites. In the book of Romans, God speaks through Paul to the Gentiles. But here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, God speaks the, to through the Apostle Peter to the entire world. He says this verse that is infused with grace and mercy to all people all around the world. And the only way a people who are by nature aliens, foreigners, and strangers to God to, could now become God's own people, God's own possession, is through the Son, Jesus Christ. The only way people who are by nature foreigners to God could be reconciled with him is if God acts first and orders their possession by his hand. Church, without Christ... Without God, there is no hope. Without Jesus Christ, we are no people. We are nobodies. We are possessed by no one. We are mucking around blind in the darkness, delighting in that which will earn us our own destruction. We can't see God, we don't know God, and we are the recipients of no grace whatsoever. We are not royal, we are not priests, we are hopeless. But now with Christ, what God now does is he finds a people who by their own merit deserve nothing. And he now freely bestows his grace his unmerited favor on those people. Now he makes us a chosen people. Now he incorporates us into a royal priesthood. Now he acts in history to let us know that we are possessed by God. Now we are a people who had no affiliation, but now we're unified and are one under our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he now incorporates us into a holy nation so that we now have the spiritual inheritance of being members of a nation, of a kingdom that will last forever. When he takes us, beloved, out of darkness, he takes us from the worst there is and brings us into his marvelous light. He brings us into the best there is. And the only way that is possible is through our precious Lord, Jesus Christ the only mediator between God and man. Our closing prayer this morning comes once again from the Puritan classic, Valley of Vision. And since today we spoke of so many spiritual benefits of being a member of God's elect, this prayer is called Privileges. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation, that it sustains the redeemed soul, that not one of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul. 
rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him, I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him, I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my Father God and friend. Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him is all love and the repose of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without him, all within me is terror and dismay. In him, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without him, all things eternal call for my condemnation. In him, they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.